Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Genesis chapters 3 and 4 and Moses chapters 4 and 5. So to give a, a label to this, this, this is the great event that we call the Fall. The Fall of Adam and Eve. Uh, it's, as we talked about last week, it, it happens to be the second pillar of three upholding the plan of salvation. The creation, then the fall, then the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ. We are going to cover some really, really important doctrines, some important scriptures here. Um, we, we want to emphasize the beauty of an ongoing restoration of truth, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. So if you look at the overall picture from a from a 30,000-foot view, we have our Genesis account of the fall in chapters 3 and 4. That's what the world had for, for millennia uh, of time, interpreting their understanding of the fall. Then the restoration of the gospel begins in the dispensation of the fullness of times, and we get some additional insight into the fall in the Book of Mormon, uh, which, which teaches some amazing new truths and new perspectives on Adam and Eve's story in the Garden of Eden and on agency and on uh, the role of, of Jesus Christ through the process of helping us to overcome the fall. It, it's beautiful. Then you get Joseph Smith finishing the Book of Mormon and starting the translation of the Bible, the JST, and what becomes now what we have in the Book of Moses for these same chapters, verse uh, Moses chapters 4 and 5, you're going to find huge chunks that are added into the story that we didn't get here. And again, we don't have to tear this down, let's bring all the good that the Bible has, see if we can add to it, and we can, to use President Hinckley's phrase there, and we're going to add amazing insight into this story. Let me just give you uh, a heads up. If you turn to Moses chapter 4, you could put a little bracket in your scriptures, if you like marking your scriptures, or make a note that verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, so Genesis 4, verse 1 through 4, those are all completely missing from the Bible. The biblical account starts in verse 5, and so let's look at what we get added to the story from antiquity. So we start in verse 1. And I, the Lord God, spake unto Moses, saying, That Satan, whom thou hast commanded in the name of mine only begotten, now, now I'm going to have to pause there, because something interesting just happened. You'll notice back in Moses 1 and in other places here along the way, we're getting an awful lot of detail and inclusion of the devil, down to what he's called in an Old Testament context, which is Satan, which comes from this, for us, from this Hebrew word Satan. Yeah, it means adversary. It's worth talking about this again, 
because he is this key character. So this word adversary in our language, the word verse actually means to turn. So when you read the scriptures, you have verses. So the adversary is somebody who intensively tries to turn you away. And what's significant here is we've talked about the power of names. Names are the lesson. So the name Satan is a lesson about who he is and what he tries to do. Furthermore, in the ancient world, um, the concept was that a name provided purpose and function or described purpose and function. So if we look at the word Satan, we actually now know kind of his purpose or function is his intent to try to turn us away from God. And we can see his efforts that are ongoing. Uh, if you look in your, in your King James Version of the Bible, the first time that you get the name Satan in English is in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Now you get the root Satan back in Numbers 22 for the first time, but it's not referring to the devil, it's referring actually to an angel and the donkey in that chapter, or Satans, because they're, they're preventing Balaam from going the direction he wants to go, they're trying to turn him aside. So the first time you get a reference to a bad guy in the Bible is clear down the road in 1 Chronicles 21. Isn't that interesting that the Book of Mormon would tell us that many plain and precious truths have been removed from the Bible, so some of those truths would be rooted in stuff like in Moses chapter 1, the identity of God and the identity of us and the identity of the devil, that he wants to remove those things because if, if it's unclear, the, the, the name, the, the purpose, the position in, in life, then, it, then it's a little easier for him to tempt us to do certain things. So it's amazing that we take what we've got from the Bible and then we add these insights from prophets, or from Joseph Smith specifically, and then later on, ongoing revelation from prophets to give us more commentary on certain events in the fall. And it doesn't mean that we have to discount and throw away everything from before, we bring all that good and we just keep adding to it to get closer and closer and closer to the full truth of what really is happening here. So, so I'm going to build out just briefly, what Tyler's pointed out is that we have these key characters in the plan of salvation that actually don't fully show up named in the Genesis account. So we don't get God's full identity in Genesis. It's a beautiful story, but Moses 1 gives us a far more compelling explanation of who God is and who we are as like in the typology of Moses. And then here with the name of identifying who Satan is, again, Satan basically is goes unnamed in the Genesis account. So again, if you're watching a play or a theater and the main characters, God, the adversary, and us who God's trying to save, and they're not clearly identified, you're going to be really confused about what the whole play is about, and or the plan, and this is the plan of salvation. So this revelation that comes through Joseph Smith is stunningly beautiful. It's, it's amazing. So, back to verse 1, God speaking to Moses, saying, "...that Satan, whom thou hast commanded in the name of mine only begotten," which happened back in chapter 1, uh, is the same which was from the beginning, and he came before me, saying, Behold, 
Here am I, send me, I will be thy son, and will redeem all mankind that one soul shall not be lost, and surely I will do it, wherefore give me thine honor. Notice, this is a verse that isn't in the, in the biblical account. We get this from Joseph Smith, this, this insight into the premortal realm where Satan comes forward with this offering, I will save all of them. When I was younger, I used to think, you know, too bad Satan didn't win because it would have been a lot easier if all of us could have just been saved. Wait, I think that right now with my kids. <laughs> I wish I could get them to do what I want. Amen. <laughs> the older I've gotten, the more I've realized, oh, wait a minute, that was the biggest lie he told in the history of, of existence. I will save them all on the condition that God give me the glory all by myself. This is, this is amazing how God describes these next um, events. Look at verse 2, but behold, my beloved Son, which was my beloved and chosen from the beginning. You see, Satan had come in as an adversary even up there to turn us away from that which had been chosen from the beginning. Jehovah, or the, the only begotten of the Father in the flesh who was Jehovah in the premortal life, he was the chosen from the beginning, and Satan was trying to turn us away from him. Notice what Jehovah says to Heavenly Father, Father, thy will be done, and the glory be thine forever. That addition to the biblical account is beautiful because it ties into his atoning sacrifice. It's not about what I want, it's what you want, it's what thou would have happen, and the glory be thine forever. And you'll see him use that concept or that phrase in other places like Doctrine and Covenant section 19 after he describes his infinite suffering and how he describes it as his preparations under the children of men. Once he's done describing that, he says, nevertheless, glory be to the Father. Uh, it's amazing how he's always focusing on give God the glory. I want to actually talk about glory for just a minute. The Hebrew word kavod, or glory, listen to all these words that this Hebrew word are associated with. Honor, glory, weight, splendor, riches, honorable, copiousness, abundance, majesty, and precious things. Just a really uh, very loaded word that has so much significant meaning, and that Satan wants all that for himself. Yeah, and the grand irony is Jesus is willing to, to play the role of the Redeemer and take all of the suffering for himself with all of the, the blessings to be given to all of us with God retaining the throne, whereas Satan doesn't want any of the suffering. He is he is secretly trying to destroy us. We might, we might actually use the, the Book of Mormon uh, concept of the Gadianton robbers. Their, their whole intent was to secretly murder and rob and plunder in order for them to get gain. I wonder where they got that idea from. I wonder who inspired them. Uh, that's exactly what Satan's doing in these verses here, look at verse 3, wherefore, because Satan rebelled against me 
and sought to destroy the agency of man which I the Lord had given him, and also that I should give unto him mine own power by the power of mine only begotten, I caused that he should be cast down. He, he's, he's trying to take everything to himself, and he can't stay in heaven. This ties into Revelation chapter 12, where, where he's cast out of heaven down to this earth. Look at verse 4, and he became Satan. So Lucifer, the son of the morning, this, this wonderfully powerful being in the premortal world, falls, and it's that concept, C.S. Lewis shares that idea that you don't make devils out of mice and cockroaches or out of rodents or out of really low things. He said you make devils out of angels, and the higher the angel, the lower the devil when they fall. That tells you something about this son of the morning, Lucifer, before his fall, how high, how wonderful, how influential he must have been, and now how far the fall. Let's actually just write this out briefly. The word Lucifer and Christopher. Actually, these fairs actually come from the word fairy, like getting a boat, you're carried from place to place. The word loose means light. Christ, right? This is Jesus Christ. This is a bearer of Christ, somebody who carries within the name of Jesus. So here's Lucifer, his original name is somebody who's a bearer of light. God is the source of all light, all truth, all knowledge. Look what happens here. He becomes, even the devil, the father of all lies to deceive and to blind men and to lead them captive by his will, even as many as do not hearken unto my voice. So it's interesting that the person who once had so much light and knowledge rejects it and tries to convince the rest of us to also reject light and truth. It's compelling, I find, that God who has all truth has invited all of us to seek after and hold on to all truth and to let go of anything that's a lie, anything that's untrue, anything that is not of light, anything that does not come of God. And if we want to become like God, we have to reject what Satan has become, and we cannot fall into his trap of loving lies and loving rumors of lies, but instead be like a Christopher, a bearer of Christ, somebody who teaches and seeks after truth and pushes away anything that is untrue. That's good. Now, you'll notice, um, look back at verse 3, he sought to destroy the agency of man. He's, he's trying to take that away. Now, we transfer this into Eden with Adam and Eve, and now in verse 5, that's where the biblical account picks up. Speaking of the serpent, you'll notice in, in the, the Garden of Eden parts of the Bible, they don't ever refer to him as the devil or the – in fact, the word devil doesn't even appear in the Old Testament. You have to go clear into the book of Matthew before you get the word devil in our English uh, KJV. Um, so they refer to him simply as the serpent. Look at verse 5. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which I, the Lord God, had made. And Satan put it into the heart of the serpent, for he had drawn away many after him, and he sought also to beguile Eve, for, mark this, he knew not the mind of God. Now, brothers and sisters, this is important to note. We don't know 
how much of the, the finer details of creation, fall, and atonement had been discussed in the councils of heaven before Satan is kicked out. We just don't know. We can, we can each have our guess as to what level of, of insight the devil may have had into the fall before he was kicked out, so if you do a, a comparison side by side with now starting in verse 5 and 6 with uh, Genesis chapter uh, 3, verse 1, 2, 3, marching through the story, you'll notice that there are quite a few things added here that Joseph gives us further clarification, and, and that little clause is one of those. Satan knew not the mind of God, meaning he's trying to destroy the agency of man, he's trying to overthrow God's plan, he's trying to turn us aside, and he thinks, it seems, that by getting them to take the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil that we'll get to here in a second, is going to overthrow God's plan, only to find out after the fact that, well, actually it's going to help move it along when we use our Restoration Scripture, not just our, our biblical account. Because, again, I have to come back to this. If you talk to friends or family members of other Christian faiths or even other um, world religions, in many cases, they, they, there are many that tie back into Eden in Judaism and Islam. They, they have variations on what's going on in Eden. Most of them look at this and want to um, berate Eve and Adam, whereas we recognize, according to the Book of Mormon and Restoration Scripture, if they, don't, if they don't do what's about to happen here, then we're still up in heaven twiddling our thumbs saying, can we get this show on the road? We'd like a, we'd like a chance to be born. So, notice he's seeking to destroy the world. Now begins this, this dialogue. Actually, I'm going to just jump in real briefly. Please do. It's kind of interesting, the way the Genesis account preserves this is there's a tie between the snake and beguiling. There's actually an underlying wordplay that Hebrew listeners kind of thought was interesting. Um, the word for is nahash and nasha. And if you were listening to this in Hebrew, you kind of hear the connection that the serpent or the adversary is trying to beguile people, which is very much about deceit and trickery and convincing people to do the opposite of what, well, to get them off the covenant path. Although, as we're going to see, God had a much larger vision, far beyond what this so-called crafty, subtle little serpent knew, that God actually understood that to be on the covenant path, this transgression, this stepping over this boundary, was actually a crucial act that needed to be done. And that's where the beauty of modern-day restoration comes in. It's amazing. Without the Book of Mormon and the JST editions and modern prophets, we would have to come to the same conclusions, that this is a terrible mistake. There's no nothing fortunate happening in this fall. But look at uh, – let, let's pick up the dialogue now, verse 7. He said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Did you notice what he just did? Satan just quoted God from, if you want to write a cross-reference there, he just quoted chapter 3, verse 17, just it's across the page there um, over in that previous chapter where God told him, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but there's a consequence attached to one of them. So he's quoting God there saying, didn't God tell you you could eat of every tree of the garden? And then this parenthetical statement, he spake by the mouth of the serpent. Uh, there have been a lot of people spill a lot of ink 
over this of is, is Satan actually speaking through the mouth of a serpent exactly, literally like it says here, or is he acting serpent-like? Honestly, at the end of the day, I, I think there's a scripture somewhere down in hell that says, whether by mine own voice or the voice of my serpents, it is the same. I think it doesn't matter as much the mode as much as it is what is being shared. What is the teaching? What is the enticement? What is the doctrine here? And so the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but, and now watch what happens, but of the fruit of the tree which thou beholdest uh, in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Isn't that interesting? What just happened there? I'm actually going to touch a tree here for a second. Bring it forward, yeah. Let's uh, bring some trees on. Let me erase this. And we got another tree here. We'll get that one. Taylor's going to branch <laughs> out a little bit here. <laughs> we got the trees of the garden symbolically. Okay, so she said that God told them they shouldn't eat of it, neither shall ye touch it lest ye die. And now watch what happens with the devil. He says, then the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. What did he just say about God? His words here in English are, you won't die, you surely won't die here, but what he just said about God is, God lied to you, God's tricking you, God's oppressing you, he's deceiving you. All of these words that we got back in verse 4 describing Satan, Satan, the greatest deceiver of all, is now ascribing those very attributes to God without actually saying it, but he's completely implying it. So notice verse 11, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Let me see if I can translate that for 21st century language um, in a way that might make a little more sense to, to us as we try to understand this story. He basically said, Eve, God doesn't want you to become like the gods. He wants to keep you lower. He wants to oppress you. He wants to bind you down and keep you from growing into your full potential. Verse 12, and when, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it became pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make her wise. So she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and also gave unto her husband with her, and he did eat." Now, we have to pause here, because that event, based on what we have in Scripture, not just Genesis, but through the rest of the Bible, and even through Restoration Scripture, makes it sound like Eve is only 100% deceived and beguiled, so beguiled, fully deceived, tricked by the devil. But we said there's this line upon line, precept upon precept, revelation process where we get more and more details, and we don't have to throw away what we already have with anything new. Listen to the words of President Russell M. Nelson, quote, it was our glorious mother Eve with her far-reaching vision of our Heavenly Father's plan who initiated what we call the fall. 
Her wise and courageous choice and Adam's supporting decision moved God's plan of happiness forward. Now that's interesting. Prophets, seers, and revelators today, when they speak of the fall, they don't speak in negative terms about Eve. Now, was there some trickery going on? No question. Do, do the prophets today know about that? Absolutely. But they're not emphasizing the beguiling. They're not emphasizing the trickery and the role of Satan. It seems like they're focusing on there was an element involved in that decision that the scriptures don't seem to cover very well that we're now starting to get more from modern prophets talking about how they're making a conscientious choice. They don't know knowledge of all good and evil, but they know knowledge of good and evil regarding this tree, and it's as if to say Eve is standing there holding a fruit from this tree needing to make a decision. Do I eat it and get the consequences that God told me about, and the devil's telling me that that's not going to happen, so there's absolutely probably some trickery and beguiling going on here, but to take President Nelson's word, her courageous, far-reaching vision and her decision, picture this decision. If I eat this fruit, I'm going to have some consequences, but among the negative consequences, among the death that was promised, I'm also going to be able to bring life. I'm going to be able to have children. She seems to have understood that, which, if that's the case, then you compare what's going on in the Garden of Eden with what goes on 4,000 years later in the Garden of Gethsemane, and all of a sudden Mother Eve takes on a very Christ-like role where she has to use her agency willingly make a choice to partake of something, just like Jesus is going to have to partake of the bitter cup, and in so doing, they know that there are going to be some pretty severe consequences for them, but in the process, they're going to be able to give life for everybody else. In that context, this tree becomes a portal into the mortal, and it's the means whereby we can now have our mortal life, and she then offers it to Adam. The, you know the real tragedy of Eden, what it would have been, is if only she had partaken, and Adam said, no way, that would have been a tragedy. That would have been, that, that, I, I don't know what would have happened, but it wouldn't have been good. The fact is, as she partook of it, Adam chooses of his own free will and choice to partake of it, and they both enter mortality together. Now you get the opportunity in mortality to work on growing your own tree of life. If you take Alma 32 as an example, this seed that gets planted in our heart and then springs up into everlasting life, so then Jesus provides us this opportunity for a portal into the immortal and the eternal world. The fall and the infinite atonement playing together between these two realms of eternity and mortality, and I can't wait for the day that I can meet Adam and Eve and thank them for giving up the ease and the comfort 
of a garden where everything grows spontaneously and they don't ever have to sweat, they don't ever have to feel pain or anguish or sorrow of any kind, they give that all up so that they can have children, but it's all about family. So you'll notice there were two commands given in Eden. The first one was to multiply and replenish the earth. The second one was don't eat the fruit of this tree. And we've talked about this in previous uh, years, in previous episodes, this idea that um, if you look at it from Father Lehi's perspective, um, he talks about them breaking or transgressing a temporal law, and, and I understand in the Doctrine and Covenants it talks about there's no such thing as a temporal law because all things are spiritual, but Lehi didn't have the Doctrine and Covenants, so we're going to let Lehi be Lehi in 600 BC where he says, that they transgressed a law that was temporal, and it's a law that was very specific only to them at that time in that place. Nobody else I know in the history of the world has ever had that commandment given to them besides Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was very temporal, very associated with that place. So it's as if they're making a decision to break that, they transgress that law. And keep in mind, in Restoration Scripture, it's never once called a sin. It's always called a transgression. But there are absolute consequences attached to it, to be sure. Don't think that, oh, this is great because now nothing but good happens. If you've ever gotten sick, if you've ever lost a loved one, if you've ever felt major depression or had earthquakes and pestilence and disease of any kind, then you know that this decision brought with it all kinds of, of uh, consequences that the scriptures attached to it, and they tell them they're going to be driven out of the garden, you're going to experience all these things, but we're looking at the positive side of this to say they chose to transgress a law of Eden in order to keep an eternal law to multiply and replenish the earth, and because they made that choice, you and I now have an opportunity to come into earth life. And by the way, this story doesn't just apply to Adam and Eve. Um, Taylor's pointed this out, we've, we've mentioned this before, that the scriptures are this grand invitation to not sit and watch the production on the stage, but to come down onto the stage and be a part of the production. We all, in, in symbolic ways, get pulled into this story. This is our story. We, we walk through this, this, these events as if we're Adam and Eve, and we think through the, the reality of, oh no, we're in trouble, we desperately need help, and that's where the Savior's infinite atonement comes in. Um, you'll notice that Verse 13 tells us, the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they had been naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Have you ever stopped to think about this for a minute? They, they realized they were naked. I think that has to do, obviously, with their lack of clothing, but I think it goes way deeper than that. I think the word naked implies this feeling of being exposed and vulnerable, I think for the first time they start experiencing things and feelings and emotions that they've never had before, where they're now vulnerable, feelings of shame and guilt and 
pain and cold and hot and hunger and thirst and fatigue and tired, they're starting to feel pretty exposed. Obviously, the physical aspect is what they're going to try to cover up. So what do they do? They go and get fig leaves and sew themselves together aprons to cover their nakedness. We've talked about this before as well. Fig leaves, they're really large. They're shaped kind of like this, and they're they're quite large. A fig leaf has such a big surface area that if you pick a fig leaf and set it on your table and just leave it there for 24 hours, 48 hours, it totally curls up on itself and it's just crumbly. It'll just fall apart if you touch it. Oh, and one side of the fig leaf has these little hair follicles on it. It's really abrasive. It's kind of like 100 grit sandpaper. It's terrible. If you're looking for clothing, you don't want the fig leaf. You have to get new clothes every day. Yes, you will. You'll have the to be replacing it. It's terrible. Abrasions would not be fun. But um, it was the latest in fall fashion, so we have to we have to just <laughs> let that one go for what it is. Here's the here's the sad part of this. You and I can sit here and and look back in time and say, what were they thinking? That that is so ineffective to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. And I think we try to cover our own nakedness, our own sins, our own weakness with things that are probably less effective than fig leaves at times. So the reality is, is we can try to fix our own problems, we can try to cover our own vulnerabilities and our own exposures to the law or to the elements, whatever it may be, but at the end of the day we need a savior. And that's the number one lesson that this fall is going to teach us is the need, the absolute need, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch what happens. They hear the voice of God while they're in the garden, so they ran and hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. You know, when I was I don't even know how old I was. I was young. My sister made me really mad, and we were out front, and she she ran into me with a bike, and it, I was just offended. She got on the bike and started running away. I reached down, and I grabbed a rock, and I threw it at her. I missed, but I hit the house, and I happened to hit a really large window of the house, and it broke it, and I thought, so this is how it ends. This, this is how I die. <laughs> I thought it was the end of the world. I went in the house and I was scared to death. And then I heard my parents' car driving in the driveway and the, the garage door opening. I ran into my bedroom and I climbed under my bed and pulled down the covers and I didn't ever want to be seen again. I was sure it was all over. Um, very similar to these, these two in this story, running and hiding. They feel shame. They're, they're scared. They don't know all of the consequences that are going to befall them. And uh, then God calls out, where goest thou? Notice, God seems to like asking us questions, the answer to which he already knows better than we do, because he's honoring agency. And so Adam comes and he says, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I beheld that I was naked and I hid myself. And then God asks Adam, 
these questions, who told thee thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the fruit of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? If so, thou shouldst surely die. And then Adam says, the woman thou gavest me and commandest that she should remain with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree and I did eat. You'll notice he didn't say, she gave me the fruit of the tree and she crammed it down my throat, she forced me to eat it. He, he does, it feels like he's passing all the blame to her, but he ends up at the end saying, I did eat, it was me, I did that. So then the woman uh, is asked, what is this thing which thou hast done? And her answer is, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. That's our scriptural account. If you look at additional words from living prophets, listen to, listen to Elder Jeffrey R. Holland's words. They were willing to transgress knowingly and consciously only because they had a full knowledge of the plan of salvation which would provide for them a way back from their struggles with death and hell. That's interesting because you don't get any of that in our scripture canon. Bible or Book of Mormon or Pearl of Great Price and Doctrine and Covenants. So modern prophets seem to be giving us even more insight into the story. So then some would ask the question, well, why did God set it up this way? I love these words from President Dallany Chokes. Quote, this was a planned offense, a formality to serve an eternal purpose. We don't know the reasons all the reasons why we can guess, but there was a reason that God wanted them to use their agency to make the choice, not a forced thing, to be able to partake of that fruit to then enter mortality and begin this process of, of moving the, the plan of Heavenly Father forward. So Eve is saying here in this text, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. You'll notice there's no mention in the scriptures of these things that we get from modern prophets. Thank heaven for modern prophets, to and we assume that down the road we're going to get more insight and more light and more truth and more knowledge regarding what happened, how it happened, and how it affects us and how we can move forward. Now look at the interaction with the serpent. Verse 20, I, the Lord God, said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this thou shalt be cursed above all cattle. Did you notice that Adam and Eve weren't cursed? There are only two things that get cursed in this whole story. One of them is the serpent, and the other is over there in verse 23, the, the ground is going to get cursed for their sake. So the serpent is cursed above all the cattle and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And then he, he goes one step further in 21, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is fascinating if you look at, at the wording, we're going to move the trees aside for a minute now. If you, if you look at the wording here, he talks about seed, and there's going to be enmity. Enmity, President uh, Ezra Taft Benson talked about this, is hatred. There's this, this um, striving. 
I'm going to place enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and between her seed. It's interesting in the in the scriptural account the layers of interpretation or application that you can give to certain teachings. It's fascinating because most of the time when you're talking about the seed of humans, it's usually the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the seed of Adam, the seed of Noah. It's usually the seed of the man, but in this context he says, between thy seed and her seed. So there's going to be somebody born that denotes the seed of the woman. Well, of all the births in the history of our mortal earth, which birth is it that could be classified as the seed of the woman, where there isn't a mortal father involved? And now if you picture God the Father saying this to the serpent with Adam and Eve there, with the Lord Jesus Christ on the right-hand side of the Father, you can picture this analogy of you're going to have power to bruise his heel, but he'll have power to bruise your head. Now, you and I can be at one level of interpretation. We can be the seed. We can, we can find direct application for ourselves, but I think the ultimate application of the Scripture is found in the person, the character, the being of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has ultimate power over the devil that you and I don't have independent of him. So you stop and think about what happens to Jesus literally on the cross. His, his heel is bruised on the cross as Satan gets the people riled up to crucify Jesus but it's in that very process that Jesus now has the capacity to bruise the head of the serpent. And if you look in your Old Testament, your Genesis account for that passage, and if you look down at the footnote, it will, it will give you a Hebrew word in that footnote that changes the word bruised to crush. It's a little different story to bruise the serpent's head versus to crush the serpent's head. Um, I can picture that resurrection morning, Easter morning, when Jesus takes his first step, and as he takes that first step, you could hear a, a symbolic, metaphorical, crushing sound because it's in that moment that the plan of our Heavenly Father is secured permanently, the war is won. Now we're fighting battles for individuals, but the war is won. Jesus has overcome the serpent completely, and it brings us clear back here into this, uh, into this experience in Eden. So this next verse, 22, has, has caused some consternation, some struggles through, throughout the history of time at various levels. <clears throat> Unto the woman, I, the Lord God, said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow, Thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee." And if we look at what we have from modern-day Revelation, the proclamation to, on the family is a beautiful one, we learn about the power of unified marriage in equal partnership. And so what we love is that God has brought forth restoration to give us a larger perspective 
So we're not simply trying to live according to what possibly might be a mistranslation, misreading, and there's just so much more joy in equal partnership. If you actually think about the Godhead, God does not dominate Jesus, and Jesus doesn't dominate and rule over the Holy Spirit. They are completely unified. And we actually learn in the creation story that Adam and Eve were created as help meets, equal and corresponding to. And sure, in the fall, God says, well, a consequence may be that people actually end up treating one another unequally. That's often how I've read this, as a consequence and not as a command that God tells people to treat each other unequally. So the invitation is, we should seek to live in Zion, in a Garden of Eden experience, where we treat each other with equality, love, kindness, and reverence, and never use our interpretation of the Bible to oppress others. Yeah. So now, speaking to Adam, look at verse 24. He, he describes what's going to happen to the earth, that, that it's cursed from up in verse 23, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. By the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread until thou shalt return unto the ground, for thou shalt surely die. Remember that in the, the, the biblical telling of time, usually they equate one day with the Lord being a thousand years with us. Well, according to our biblical account, Adam's going to die at age 930. So he, did, he dies in the day he ate thereof physically, according to heaven's time, but he's going to die spiritually, he's going to be separated from God in a, in a much shorter time frame. So then, notice Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, Chava. It's that, that Hebrew name that means life. The name is the lesson, and in the name is purpose and function. In fact, there's a wordplay with her name, also with Adam's name, which we've talked about before. You have it there twice. For dust, back in verse 23, for dust thou wast, and unto dust thou shalt return. The word Adam essentially means dust or dirt, and that we are part of this material environment, but that we are children of God, and we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously in the material things that God gives us, but he does grant us life. This is all these beautiful, beautiful, cool lessons. Beautiful in these names. So, unto Adam and also unto his wife did I, the Lord God, make coats of skins and clothed them. You notice how easily we just read through that verse 27. It's just like, yep, there you go, now moving on, they're clothed. Brothers and sisters, if you stop and think about this, Adam and Eve, we, we would assume, we don't know this for sure from the record or from, from prophets giving us the details, but we would assume that Adam and Eve watched as two animals, one for Adam and one for Eve, die. They're going to watch blood flow and an animal's life be taken. Why? The animal didn't do anything wrong. The animal didn't make any decisions. It didn't transgress any laws. It was, it was flawless. But the animal's going to die so that its skin can be used to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. In an Old Testament context, the word kafar, 
this covering is one of the most beautiful metaphors for understanding the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ, that the Lamb of God gives his life so that you and I can cover our own nakedness to the eternal laws and to all of the pains and sicknesses and sorrows attached to this fall that you and I inherited being born into this mortal family of Adam and Eve on the earth. And so they're not even out of Eden yet, and they're already learning their first major object lesson about their, uh, their future redemption and the infinite sacrifice of the Son of God, who will make himself the Lamb of God uh, for this offering in order to cover us in our weakness and in our nakedness. So then he sends him forth out of the Garden of Eden. Book of Mormon uses the words driven forth. They're cast out. There are absolute consequences, but they made those choices willingly of their own free will and choice. So then they come out, verse 31, I drove out the man and I placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Almost as if to say, don't, it's the time is not right to partake of the tree of life right now. You need a time, the Book of Mormon talks about this, a time to learn, to grow, to repent, to prepare to meet God, and it's this long process of growing your own tree of life with the help of the Savior until that day when that fruit ripens and it becomes sweet above all that is sweet and white above all that is white, to use the descriptions that Lehi gives to it in 1 Nephi chapter 8 down the road. So thus we begin mortality. Now, as you jump into chapter 5, once again, remember the JST is adding big chunks of text to our biblical understanding. You can put a bracket, if you'd like, from chapter 5 verse 1 all the way down to the first line of verse 16. That entire 15 uh, verses plus an extra line is an addition to what you get in the, in the Bible. So without the restoration of the gospel, we wouldn't have these, these teachings, and some of them are – we take them for granted. We think everybody in the Christian world knows this, and it's not, it's not ubiquitous. It's not out there with everybody. It's very unique to the restoration of the gospel through Joseph Smith. Notice verse uh, 5, there, bottom of verse 4, they're shut out from his presence. That's that spiritual death, so they're not in the presence of God. Verse 5, he gave unto them commandments that they should worship the Lord their God and should offer the firstlings of their flocks for an offering unto the Lord, and Adam was obedient unto the commandments of the Lord. Have you ever stopped to think about that for a minute? Ever stop to think about what it might feel like to say, go and take the firstborn male of each of your ewe lambs, keep track of them so you know them, know your sheep, and when they're about a year old and as long as there's no blemish in them, now you take those and those are the ones you're going to kill and put on an altar and sacrifice. This makes this makes no sense. Why would I, why would I decrease my, my herd? The, those lambs did nothing wrong. And we have the benefit, because we know how this all ends, 
But here's Adam and Eve being so obedient to God. They've learned the lesson from the garden that listen to God, and yet it doesn't make any sense. I'm losing, like, my my crop, my animals. Like, today, could you imagine if God told you to get rid of your way of, uh, to get to work? Like, just get rid of it. You have no way of getting to work. Because <laughs> back then, they were... They were sheep herders. That's how they were sustained. So, so picture this. Let me. This is a little bit out of shape. We'll go like that. There we go. It's still bad, but it works. Picture this altar, and picture what Adam and Eve are being asked to place on the altar. Um, you'll notice they've been doing this not just one or two times. Look at the next verse. And after many days, an angel of the Lord appeared unto Adam, saying, Why dost thou offer sacrifices unto the Lord? And Adam said unto him, I know not, save the Lord commanded me. I think there's some real power from our first parents here that sometimes you are given some inspiration or a command of what to do, you may even know how to do it. Adam and Eve apparently knew what they were doing on the how, they knew what they were commanded to do, and they're doing it. But what they don't know is why. And I love the fact that the scriptures have lots of examples of this where people are asked to take a leap of faith. They're asked to do something without fully understanding why. What's the purpose? What's the intent? Why doesn't God ask me to do something else? I'd rather not kill my animals, especially the way they're, they're sacrificing them and then consuming them on this altar. But I love the fact that they do it anyway. They pay attention to what they know, not what they don't know, and they move forward in faith to the best of their ability knowing and trusting that God will, in his own time, in his own way, make all things known unto them, as happened in verse 6, because the angel finally comes and asks the question. And then verse 7, the angel spake, saying, This thing is a similitude of the sacrifice of the only begotten of the Father, which is full of grace and truth. Wherefore, thou shalt do all that thou doest in the name of the Son. Thou shalt repent and call upon God in the name of the Son forevermore. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we get so excited about principles or teachings of the gospel that we miss the mark. We, it is possible to get so excited about teaching a lesson on repentance that we never once mention the name of Jesus Christ or his infinite atonement and the grace that he offers us to be able to empower us to go through that repentance process or to have faith in him, or to get baptized. If the baptism is just about the water and the white clothing and the, the talks and the prayers, then we've missed the whole point of the baptism, which was a connection in a covenant relationship with the Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gets us onto that covenant path to bring us back to the presence of God someday. I love this idea, thou shalt do all that thou doest in the name of the Son. Whether it's going to church, going to the temple, open your scriptures, having faith, repenting, taking the sacrament, it's 
all done in the name of the Son. We keep putting the focus on him, keep putting him at the core and the center of not only our worship but of our very lives, our very existence. So, so look at the outcome now, verse 9, and in that day the Holy Ghost fell upon Adam, which beareth record of the Father and the Son, saying, I am the only begotten of the Father from the beginning, henceforth and forever, that as thou hast fallen, thou mayest be redeemed, and all mankind, even as many as will. All those who choose it. If it's your will, if it's what you want, you choose it. So our agency is fully alive. God offers it freely. It's our choice to accept. So now, all of those sacrifices have fallen into place and this question mark after the word why becomes an exclamation mark. It has a purpose and a meaning and an in intention that is very clear to him and to her and they get it. They now move forward with greater faith in Christ. Look at verse 10, in that day Adam blessed God and was filled and began to prophesy concerning all the families of the earth, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Do you notice the difference maybe between sacrifices that Adam and Eve offered before that experience versus sacrifices that they offered after? I think in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we make that covenant connection with Christ, when we have this knowledge from God that comes because of our faithful, diligent obedience, it's not perfect, but we've done the best we can moving forward, and then God gives us that additional revelation, now we move forward and we are no longer keeping the commandment just out of, I don't know other than God commanded me, now we're keeping it out of a sense of love and covenantal connection at a deeper level than it was before. And there are some of you watching who are making sacrifices, not of lambs, not of animals, but of other things. You're making sacrifices and you're wondering, how long do I have to keep doing this? How long does this trial stretch out? Why am I asked to do this? And as you continue to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust God in his timing and his purposes and his plan for you, you know, like our first parents knew, that there will be a day. I don't know, for some of you it'll be today, for some of you it'll be next week, for some it'll be next year, and some it might not even be till the next life, but it will come. It, the, God will not have these tests going on forever where he reveals all things and at that point, I don't think any of us will look back and say, oh, I wish I wouldn't have sacrificed so much for God. I wish I would have held back. I don't think anybody's going to say that, but I do think there will be a lot of people who will lament and say, oh, if only I could turn back the clock and give more of my life, sacrifice more of what I have for him. Now, isn't it interesting that in antiquity, the thing that is pointing them to the Savior's infinite atonement is sacrifice, and what do we get today? Do you see the root word? Sacra, sacra, it's to make holy, it's to make pure and sanctified. We don't go to sacrifice meetings 
every week. We go to sacrament meetings. So thank heaven nothing has to be sacrificed when we go to that meeting, right? Or wrong. We're no longer killing animals. We're now sacrificing a broken heart and a contrite spirit. We're sacrificing the natural man, natural woman, animal that we have inside of us. We're, we're letting it be placed on an altar, so to speak, in memory of the, the ultimate sacrifice that was performed for us in the Savior giving up his life. Now, back to Adam's words in verse 10, because he's blessing God and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and here he prophesies saying, Blessed be the name of God, for because of my transgression my eyes are opened, and in this life I shall have joy, and again in the flesh I shall see God. You'll notice verse 1 through 15 again is not in the biblical account, so our, our Christian friends in other faiths, they don't have this account, so you can see why they sometimes would maybe, based on what we have in just the Bible, would belittle Adam and Eve and, and not feel great feelings about them. But we have this and we say, wow, it's because of his transgression. Once again, it's never a sin. It's always a transgression of the law of Eden. That's how it talks about it in the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. Because of my transgression, my eyes are opened. And then don't you love verse 11? Eve jumps in and she uses more of the inclusive pronouns. Adam used all the personal singular pronouns. Eve uses the plural pronouns here. Eve, his wife, heard all these things and was glad, saying, were it not for our transgression, we never should have had seed and never should have known good and evil and the joy of our redemption and the eternal life which God giveth unto all the obedient. I love those two verses because without those we're left wondering, well, did they really regret what they had done? Do they feel stupid? Do they feel shameful for the rest of their life? Are they saying, man, I wish we could go back and undo that? Well, based on these two verses, they're saying, no way, because it's that transgressing the law of Eden that allows us to have seed and to know good and evil, and we now know the joy of our redemption and the eternal life. It's beautiful to let Adam and Eve be the ones to tell us about the consequences of the fall. It's beautiful. And then verse 12, now you get both of them together, Adam and Eve blessed the name of God, and they made all these things known unto their sons and their daughters. So they're teaching their family all of these beautiful lessons that they've learned. The word blessed actually comes from a really important word, uh, blood. It's a gift of life, essentially, and there's this connection to sacrifice that um, the great greatest blessings come from the blood of Jesus Christ, that he has sacrificed for all of us, and this is the similitude that Adam and Eve had been practicing. And so possibly when it says they blessed the Lord, they were continuing to do sacrifice, which included blood, as a way of saying we recognize that all the joy that we have is covered and made possible through the blood of the real lamb, who is thy beloved son. Beautiful. Now, shifting gears, we go to this part of the story. Keep in mind, they're, they're sharing these things with their sons, plural, and daughters, plural. Remember, that part isn't in the biblical account. 
So if you look up the Bible story, it makes it sound like Cain is the firstborn son and Abel is the secondborn child of Adam and Eve. Based on uh, Moses chapter 5, we find out that they have multiple children before Cain's born, and Satan in verse 13 comes among the children of Adam and Eve, and he tells them, I am also a son of God, and he commanded them, saying, Believe it not, and they believed it not, and they loved Satan more than God, and men began from that time forth to be carnal, sensual, and devilish. Isn't that interesting? As they hearken to the voice of the devil there, they they take on these carnal, sensual, and devilish uh, traits. Verse 14, the Lord God called upon men by the Holy Ghost everywhere and commanded them that they should repent, and as many as believed in the Son and repented of their sins should be saved, and as many as believed not and repented not should be damned. And the words went forth out of the mouth of God in a firm decree, wherefore they must be fulfilled. This isn't, these aren't suggestions, these are commandments. And then Adam and Eve, his wife, ceased not to call upon God. Now, you can put a period there because that's where the JST edition ends. Now you get, for now, we'll come back to it, now you pick up where you do in the Bible in, Mo- in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. So we've added all of this to the account, now it picks up, Eve conceived and bare Cain, and she said, now I've gotten a man from the Lord, and then she has Abel, this second son, after this first set of children. So our first son that we're going to talk about in this part of the story is Cain, then his brother Abel. So Cain and Abel, Abel is a shepherd, a good shepherd. Cain is a tiller of the soil, a farmer. You'll notice Eve says, I've got, a, I've got a child of the Lord. This, this is a good boy. He has open communication with God. He, he's talking openly with God and listening to God. That doesn't happen with most people. At least we don't have record of that happening with a lot of people back then. But Cain has this open communication. But then something happened in verse 18. Cain loved Satan more than God, and Satan commanded him, saying, make an offering unto the Lord. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. You'll notice that you have two brothers in this context. They're sons of really good parents who are teaching them really good things. They're both going to come and make an offering. One offering is going to be rejected, the other is going to be accepted. Is it starting to sound like a variation on a premortal theme? Two sons of good parents making an offering. One, an offering of a lamb, where a life is going to be given, blood is going to be shed. Huh, I wonder if this could be related to the offerings up in heaven that we talked about at the beginning of the lesson, where Satan is making an offering that gets rejected by the Lord, so he's making this offering that doesn't cost much, and it's rejected, but watch what happens next. Verse 21 says, But unto Cain and to his offering 
God had not respect. Now Satan knew this, and it pleased him, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Can you picture up in heaven the countenance of Lucifer falling when he doesn't get his offering accepted? And the Lord says to Cain in verse 22, Why art thou wroth? Why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, thou shalt be accepted. I can picture loving parents up in heaven saying exactly that same thing to Lucifer when his offering is rejected. It's just do well. Trust Jesus, rely on him, he was the chosen from the beginning, and you will have glory. We will share in all of our dominion and all of our power and all of our possessions with you, but the countenance has fallen. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and Satan desireth to have thee. And except thou shalt hearken unto my commandments, I will deliver thee up, and it shall be unto thee according to his desire, and thou shalt rule over him." Interesting, now that analogy gets crossed over so much, it, it breaks down very quickly. For from this time forth thou shalt be the father of his lies, and thou shalt be called perdition thou wast also before the world." Interesting, in scriptures you get two people who get the title or the name or the, the label of perdition, Lucifer and Cain. Uh, so look at verse 26, Cain was wroth, he listened not any more to the voice of the Lord, neither to Abel his brother who walked in holiness before the Lord. Are we seeing comparisons to that premortal story? and to how that story played out when it changes grounds from heaven down to the earth? And are you seeing how this isn't just about the Savior and the devil, it's our story as well, how sometimes if we're not careful when we do something and it's not accepted by the Lord, if we're not careful we'll let our countenance fall and we'll stop listening to the Lord and start walking after our own path, the path the devil has laid out for us, and there are millions of those, but there's only one path that Christ has marked and laid out for us that goes to eternal life. So let's jump down to verse 30. And Satan swore unto Cain that he would do according to his commands, and all these things were done in secret. Think Gadianton robbers and what they do. Think um, pre-mortal life, what Satan was trying to do. It's all done in secret. So Satan's doing this secret uh, effort to try to destroy us in order for him to get all the gain and all the glory. Now Cain is sitting there glorying in this, saying, Truly I am Mahan, the master of this great secret, that I may murder and get gain. Wherefore Cain was called Master Mahan, and he gloried in his wickedness. He's glorying in the wickedness. There's no shame. There's no feeling of remorse or regret or guilt. These are uh, interesting words. Uh, Mahan comes from the word maha, like a maharaja, it means great, and actually even the word master comes from this, a similar word which means um, great or like the word mega, and it's all about their own greatness. Well, who ultimately is great? It is God. God will make us great, but if we try to make ourselves great, we always cause, cause problems because we have to belittle and hurt and diminish and destroy others. But if instead we seek to make others great and to build them up, to build the kingdom of God, 
we become great. We don't have to be like Cain and glory in our own supposed greatness. So interesting words. The master of Mahan literally means the great, great one. It's kind of a, a duplicated emphasis of, what he, of how he thought he was so awesome. So now picture, take, take that context into the New Testament time period of Satan and all of, all of the hosts and the dominions of hell trying to fight against the Savior and his kingdom that he's building up on the earth with his apostles and disciples following him, and you picture those efforts to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ um, from the devil through the lenses of the story of Cain and Abel. Look at verse 32. Cain went into the field, and Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass that while they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. Now you can picture what might – we don't know, but, but you can imagine maybe what, it, what, what might have been going on in, in the devil's realm that night when Jesus was crucified. Look at verse 33. Cain gloried in that which he had done, saying, I am free. Surely the flocks of my brother falleth into my hands. This isn't so much about lambs and sheep. This is about you and me. This is a battle for our souls. This is real. This, this ultimate battle between good and evil, and we're in the middle being uh, being the ultimate prize, so to speak, between these two opposite forces working working to, to gain us. Surely the flocks of my brother falleth into my hands. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? It's an interesting word. The word keeper here actually is a shepherding word. Cain's saying, I'm not a shepherd of my brother. I'm not supposed to oversee and take care and protect him. And yet, what does God ask of all of us? Love God, love your neighbor. We could translate that differently. Love God and keep your neighbor. Shepherd over them and let them shepherd you. If you look at the word bishop, it's an overseer, like a shepherd who's there to protect the flock. And we should do everything in our power for those who are in our sphere of influence to protect them, to uplift them, to be a blessing in their lives. Instead of saying, these people are not my responsibility, let them do their own devices. So it's a very very sad claim on Cain's state of what he thinks about humanity in the guise of his brother, that it's not his purpose. His purpose is to use and misuse and abuse people to get gain, which, by the way, let's just take those individual flocks that he may have acquired. They're long gone. You can't take things with you the next life. That, that's the amazing thing is you can literally gain the entire world if, if you became the king or the queen of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people on this planet, how long does that last and what have you really gained? And what, what do you get eternally? And so the devil is constantly getting us to focus on these worldly pursuits and the worldly pleasures and the worldly accolades and awards and, and money and power because then we're probably spending less time focusing on that which is eternal and these things that we're talking about of really ministering and really watching over and really turning outward and asking, 
what can I do to help you rather than what can I get out of you or how can I exploit you or how can I have you help me, which is a very devilish approach to life versus the Christ-like approach to life, which is what do you need? How can I give up my Eden, like Mother Eve and Father Adam did, in order to bring more life in greater abundance for you? Because we're living in a fallen world, we're all experiencing the effects of the fall of Adam and Eve, we've all experienced sickness, pain, death to one degree, loss, struggles of all varieties, and we need help. We don't just need help from heaven ultimately, which we absolutely do, but we want to become more like Christ, and he has surrounded you with people who need your ministering and your love and your compassion and your kindness. You get to practice being more like Jesus Christ every day than ever before in the history of the earth, I believe, with all that he has given us, with the technologies that we have, with the scriptures as well as modern revelation, and thank heaven for living prophets because we trust that he's going to continue to keep giving us greater light and knowledge and truth regarding these stories and how they apply to us. We, we wanted to end on, on a happier note, kind of overviewing this whole story of going back into the garden to that moment when Mother Eve makes that decision. Do I choose to partake of this fruit, knowing what she knows based on our modern prophet's quotes? You know what? It's not worth it. I, I want to continue to enjoy a life of comfort and ease and predictability. Thank heaven that Mother Eve made the conscientious choice to give up all of that freedom and that ease of life in order to suffer. Ultimately, she's going to die. I love our mother, even our father Adam, for the decisions that they made and how they opened the door for us to also experience those things. And unfortunately, we live in a world that feels like the worst thing ever is pain and suffering and death and loss, and yeah, those things hurt. Nobody loves them, but they're all part of a merciful plan of our Heavenly Father. So our hope for us and for you is that as we close this particular important chapter of our Come Follow Me curriculum this year on the fall, that we, like Father Adam and Mother Eve, can reflect not just on their choice, but on our own lives and say, I am going to glorify God and I'm going to thank him for giving me this opportunity to come into this fallen mortal world and experience all these things uh, and all of the opportunities that they give me to practice and to learn and to become more like Jesus Christ as that tree of life is slowly growing inside of our heart, in our soul, until the day that it's fully ripe. We love you. We hope you feel the joy of the gospel and the joy of studying the gospel in the scriptures. Know that you're loved. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.